Hey there, this is Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante. And in today's episode, or this episode, it's always today on a podcast, right? It's a quantum reality. It's always today. In today's episode of the podcast Walking with Dante, we have come to the opening of Canto 4. We have gotten Dante well underway in his journey. And before I read the passage for today, which is the first 45 lines of Canto 4, I'm going to make a confession to you. This is one of several cantos that I have always disliked. I'm going to explain why that is, and I have thought a great deal about this podcast. In between the recording of the last episode and this one, I have sat on this canto for about two weeks now. I've tried and tried and tried to figure out why I am dissatisfied with this canto and why I don't think it actually works. And I've renovated some of my old ways. Let me save all that for what's ahead, and let me just say that we are at the opening of Canto 4, and before I read it, oh, I'm really delaying things desperately now, aren't I? I'm giving you kind of a prelude to Canto 4, I'm giving you desire without fulfillment. Um, <laughs> let me just say where we came from. A man woke up in a wood, he didn't know where he was, he started to climb out on a hill, he fell back down the hill because of three beasts that blocked him and also his own will to always look back or maybe his own foot to always look back at the bottom of this hill as he was falling back toward that dark wood he met a figure Virgil who appeared to him who offered a prophecy of Italy told him all about Beatrice and Lucy and the Virgin Mary that whole bit they then set out, they entered the gate of hell, they saw those who were neutral, both angels and humans who had never made a choice, and then they came to Acaronte, or Acheron, the river that Charon uh, glides his boat over, and they stood on the shore, they watched Charon take some people over, suddenly an earthquake hit, maybe lightning, something happened, and Dante passed out. Here we are, Canto Four. Lines 1 through 45. A giant thunderclap resounded in my head and broke up my deep sleep so that I woke up as if someone had shoved me hard. Getting up, I turned my rested eyes in every direction and then stared fixedly to learn where I was. Truth is, I found myself on the edge of the valley of the abyss of sorrow that resounds with infinite wailing. It was so dark and deep and foggy that even though I tried hard to see the bottom, I couldn't make out a thing. Let's go down into the blind world, the poet began all sickly pale, and I will be first and you will be second. I noted my guide's color and said, how am I supposed to come with you if you're afraid? Because I look to you for solace when I'm in doubt. And he to me the anguish of the people who are below has tinted my face with compassion, which you mistake for fear. Let's go, for the long path calls us. So he set out and made me enter the first circle wrapped around the abyss. Here was no lamenting, none that could be heard, only sighs that made the eternal atmosphere tremble, sighs of grief without torment, which came up to me from a thick and large crowd made up of babies, women, and men. My good master said to me, So you are not going to ask me what spirits are these that you see? Before we walk any farther, I want you to know that these did not sin. If they earned themselves some merit, 
wasn't enough because there was no baptism, which is the doorway to the faith that you believe. And if they existed before Christianity, they did not worship God as is required. I am counted one of these. Because of these deficits and for no other fault, we are lost and afflicted in only this way. We live in desire without hope. My heart was pressed down with sorrow when I heard this because I understood that people of outstanding merit were here suspended in limbo. Okay, that's where we're going to stop. That's where the passage is going to come today before we press on because we have come to limbo. And as I told you in that opening bit of the podcast, I said I'm (laughs) giving you desire without hope. I'm delaying and delaying reading the passage. It's that line, we live in desire without hope, as Virgil says. I'm not going to reread the passage to you again. Instead, I just want to go through it slowly because I have a lot to say about this passage. And it's part of my discontent with this canto. So let's just go. A giant thunderclap at the start resounded in my head and broke up my deep sleep so that I woke up as if someone had shut me hard. If you remember in the last canto, Dante faints or falls asleep. It seems like it's sleep. Commentators always say Dante passes out. It's not clear that he actually passes out here. He's going to pass out later, and that's clearer. But it seemed like he went to sleep at the end of Canto 3, and here a thunderclap resounded in my head and broke up my deep sleep, and I turned my rested eyes in every direction as if he's had a nice rest. I'm just sitting here thinking, it's as if he's had his colonoscopy and that lovely feeling of restfulness after the anesthesia. (laughs) Maybe that's what happened. Dante had a colonoscopy between the cantos. Really, what happened is unclear. We don't know how he got across the river. I made a big deal out of this in the last episode, and I actually think it's a failure on the poet's part to figure this out. Listen, let me explain this for a minute before we pass on into limbo itself. Uh, here's, Here's how I see it. Dante is on the run. He's in exile. He announces himself a party of one in Arezzo. He may start writing Inferno somewhere around that point. Ultimately, he ends up in the patronage of Can Grande, the first of La Scala, and then, you know, the Polenta family and Ravenna. And in the patronages, writing implements and and what to write on <laughs> is, is more available. Listen, this is pre-computers, right? You cannot endlessly revise sections of your work because you can't afford it. Sure, you can have more writing paraphernalia probably in the patronage of a warlord. He's probably got more resources. On your own, not so much, but his resources aren't limitless. And this is a world in which rewriting is costly. It costs you a lot. You've got to get this stuff, these materials. Well, listen, I have a I have a short story on my computer. I've been working on this short story. I'm toying around with it probably for two years. Toyed and toyed and toyed around. And you know, I turn my computer on. I've got a million other things to do. I have a whole cookbook career I have to follow. I have my podcasts. I have all this stuff that I have to do. You know, maybe once every three months, four months, I print the thing off. I look at it. I read it. I toy with it. I move passages around. What does it cost me? I look at my screen. I move things around. I, you know, tinker with words, all that kind of stuff. In the modern world, revision is so easy. It's not easy in Dante's world because the resources are scarce. It's expensive to rewrite. And so we should not be surprised that even though the poet may have a grand architecture for this thing worked out, just like any writer works on an architecture 
for the thing they're going to write, we should not be surprised to see Dante trying to figure it out as he goes forward in ways that may make us uncomfortable as moderns. I would argue that we're watching him try to figure it out because he still hasn't gotten to the point where he can answer the question, how does a corporeal person, how does a person in their physical body walk across the underworld? And as I made a big deal last time, he can't figure out how to get him across the water and in that boat and what would happen and the boat would submerge a bit or, you know, it would sink in the water and how's that going to work and what are these people? And you can see this kind of development happening over the course of comedy and nowhere, and this is how I've renovated my ideas of Canto 4, nowhere can you see Dante's growing development of his understanding of what he's writing more than in Canto 4 because he's absolutely toying with, playing with, and changing around church doctrine. So he gets up. He looks around. I turned my rested eyes in every direction and then stared fixedly to learn where I was. This is an important point. It will carry on throughout the entire comedy. That is staring fixedly, looking hard, to put it in modern cliche, seeing is believing, looking hard at something to understand it. And this may seem like obvious, just kind of narrative mechanism. I looked hard to try to understand it. But believe me, this is going to play out thematically throughout comedy until the very end when Dante stares into the very essence of God up in heaven. And this notion of staring down and looking at something fixedly in order to try to immerse yourself in it or to see to the bottom of it or to see it clearly in some way is incredibly thematic to comedy. As I said, seeing is believing. If you're smarty pants, you'll say, but where does that put the reader? If the pilgrim is constantly in the state of having to stare and look hard to really understand something, then what about me, the reader who can't see it? I'm only seeing the words on the page. Or is, is that analogous to my position as a reader? I am supposed to stare fixedly into these words to see the bottom of them. Truth is... Dante goes on, I found myself on the edge of the valley of the abyss of sorrow that sounds with infinite wailing. And there have been hundreds of years, hundreds of years of commentators trying to answer the question of whether the resounding infinite wailing here is the same thing as the thunderclap that woke him up at the beginning of the canto. Is that all the same sound system that's going on? And believe me, that has dogged commentators for a hundreds of years. I'm going to leave it alone and I'm going to say there's a thunderclap. You might say, how is there thunder in a cave in the ground under the earth? Let's just delay that for a while. Very good question, but let's just delay that for a while. I'm going to say there's a thunderclap and then there is infinite wailing, which is coming up from this pit. Because let me talk to you just a second about the architecture of hell. Hell is conical. It's a giant cone descending down. And of course, if you know anything about Dante, and if you don't, here you go. Hell is made up of rings. There are rings around this cone that is going down inside the earth. And this structure means that as Dante's standing up here on the top ring of hell, he's looking down toward the center and trying to see the bottom, but he can't. He says, it was so dark and deep and foggy that even though I tried hard to see the bottom, I couldn't make out a thing. I couldn't see clear to the bottom of everything. You can tell 
it's an abyss at this point. I don't know that he can tell that it's got multiple rings, but I know that he is aware that Virgil's about to lead him to the first cornice. Okay, let's pass on. This time without any funny voices, Virgil just says, let's go down into the blind world. The poet, Virgil still being called a poet, not a philosopher, the poet began all sickly pale. And I'm going to pause because this is a big point. Virgil blanches or changes color. Now, I'm not going to talk about how that happens. That is a question, a giant question for Dante. And the thing that's amazing about Dante is he's not going to leave these things alone. How does a shade, a soul, change color? How does it turn pale? How does it blanch? I mean, what color are they? The word ombre, shade, seems always to me to indicate that they're gray, like in my bathroom where the shadow of the tree falls on the white tiles and they're kind of gray. That's what I always think of is that these, the the dead, the damned, are kind of grayish in color, maybe brownish in color. But how do they change color? I don't want obviously, the medievals are not going to know how they're colored. Color is just going to be an attribute. You know, a little bit about the fragmentation of light, a little in prisms, not like we know. And they certainly don't know anything that color doesn't actually exist in the world that is actually firings in your neurons that's reinterpreting functions of light in the world. They don't know anything about that, of course. But color for them is an attribute and you can change attributes they are the things that are as it were superficial to the thing itself so you can change attributes but they're still attributive they're like affixed to you even though you can change them like your clothes so people can change colors great i know how people can change colors in a medieval context i don't know how how dead people can i don't know how souls can so i'm not even going to address that that's a huge question because we're approaching the corporeality of the soul we're back to that question i posed earlier how does a soul exactly feel pain how does that work but okay let's let's skip all that let's pretend we're not doing it and say that virgil turns color so let's just talk about why this happens there's a lot of commentary on this that virgil blanches right before the first descent because this is the first true moment of hell remember the neutrals are on a portal of hell and Acaronte, the river with Karen and his boat we're not yet quite in hell we're, we're amongst the damned I think I think the neutrals are damned it's weird right because they said they're not even living or dead but putting that hard interpretive bit aside certainly the people standing on the shore of Acaronte of the river are damned and we've been amongst them but now we're actually descending into hell itself to the first ring and Virgil Blanches why there's a ton of discussion on this a ton of commentary on why Virgil Blanches he seems to answer it so let's take his answer first I will be first Virgil says and you will be second I noted my guide's color there <laughs> There's that problem of how does a shade have color? I noted my guide's color and said, how am I supposed to come with you if you're afraid? Because I look to you for solace when I'm in doubt. This may be a little bit about not only I am using you as your, my guide, my master, my poet, but it also may be a little bit of a commentary about classical literature, Virgil the Aeneid, as solace for even Christians, for even Christian pilgrims. This may have a little bit to that. Remember, there's a lot of commentary about uh, Dante using classical literature as solace to help him over the death of Beatrice. And lines like this, I look to you, Virgil, for solace when I'm in doubt, 
seem to support that idea that Dante turned to classical literature first as a solace to help him overcome the death of Beatrice, who wasn't his wife, but was the love of his life. That could be, and you could point to this line as something like that, that you're, he's not really saying it to Virgil, he's saying it to Virgil with all of Virgil's writings sitting up on top of Virgil's head, as it were. But Virgil replies, the anguish of the people who are below has tinted, who oh, I don't even want to talk about how that happens, below has tinted my face with compassion, which you mistake for fear. Okay, so Virgil's answer is, you think I'm afraid, but I'm not. I, I feel pity. I feel compassion. I translate it compassion, pietà. I feel pity for the people that are down below in some, in some way, and you're mistaking my emotions. You can't read them right. Well, then we have two options here. And then we have the fact that the that the Christian poet cannot adequately interpret the classical writer, which is intriguing standing right on limbo. Or we have to ask the question, do we believe Virgil? Is he right? Uh, he this is the this is the answer he gives. I'm blanching because I feel compassion for what I'm about to uh, come on. Does is that why he blanches, or does he blanch because he's afraid? He's about to descend into hell. And as you will now see in this very passage, we're about to descend to his home. His home is the first circle of hell. The question here, there's a question, a little bit of an interpretive niggle here. The anguish of the people who are below has tended my face. Does he mean below as in the people in limbo that we're about to see in the first circle? Or does he mean below as in all the way down this conical structure, all the way to the bottom? And later in the poem, we'll find out that Virgil has already made this journey once. So is he talking about, oh my gosh, uh, this whole thing that I now know that goes all the way to the bottom, which we're going to discover again, as I say, Virgil has done this trek once before. Is he blanching because of that or just limbo? I don't know. It's unclear why exactly the, who the anguish of the people are below, who are those below. But I can tell you that somehow he's changed color. He's blanched. He's tinted his face. He's upset. Is it because that this is just too much, that this is where I live, that this is this the final moment where Virgil has to come out and say, which he does in this passage, I'm damned? Or is it because he blanches because he really does feel compassion for what's about to happen, that he's about to endure all of this suffering? If it is the compassion answer, it's a little weird because later in the poem, Dante will be chastised for showing any compassion to the people in hell, and he will be chastised by Virgil for showing compassion to the people in hell. So it's a little weird that Virgil is right here. Maybe it's that Dante is changing his mind and this is what he wants now and as we're seeing the poem develop or watching the poet develop his own answers and maybe it's that mm, i like this answer better as you know maybe it's that virgil's not really quite accurate about how he feels he's not being quite honest with us in the way the classical literature is not quite honest with christians about the reality of the world but that's a bigger question let's go on Virgil says, the long path calls us, so let's go, let's go on, and he set out and made me enter the first circle wrapped around the abyss. You should just know, and I'm going to save this for the next episode, but you should just know that although this is limbo and it is named limbo, it is distinctly in hell. This is the first way that Dante changes 
traditional Christian doctrine. Traditional Christian doctrine does not have limbo as a part of hell. It has a part of the afterlife, but not hell. Here, this circle is definitely in hell. The first circle wrapped around the abyss. This is it. This is circle number one. Here was, I'm going on in the poem, here was no lamenting, none that could be heard only sighs that made the eternal atmosphere tremble. Notice the auditory before the visual. We had this before with the neutrals. We heard them before we saw them. We heard the screaming before we saw them running after the flag. And again, a similar thing here, the auditory. But this time, it's not screaming. It's just sighs. So while he stood up on the top before they got to the first round and looked down and he could hear the infinite wailing coming up from the abyss, here now that wailing seems to have been suppressed or we can't hear it as well. And what we hear are sighs. And it goes on to explain them. Sighs of grief without torment, which came up to me from a thick and large crowd made up of babies, women, and men. I'm going to save this for the next episode of the podcast, Walking with Dante. Why are there babies floating around here? I'm going to save it because it has to do with the developing notion of limbo in Christian theology, which I'm endlessly fascinated about, as you'll hear. But right now, let's just say that there are babies, women, and men, and they're just standing around apparently sighing a lot. My, imagine that you're, I'm sorry to laugh. Imagine that's your eternal fate, just to sigh. You're just standing around. Huh. All the time. <laughs> I'm sorry to laugh. It doesn't seem it doesn't seem like punishment. And believe me, many people have pulled away from this saying, Well, this doesn't sound so bad. It's this isn't like those neutrals that were being stung and having their tears sucked up by maggots and being stung by hornets and wasps. This doesn't sound so bad. You just have to stand around for eternity sighing. <laughs> So many people have wanted to say, to point to that and say that Dante's humanism is on full display here. That, see, it's not so bad. These people in limbo, they don't, they're not tortured. Yeah, maybe, but this is the first rung of hell. They are definitely in hell. Moving on to the poem. My good master said to me, so you're not going to ask me what spirits are these that you see? This is so weird out of Virgil. Remember Virgil chastised Dante just in the last canto for asking too many questions. Now, the next canto over, canto four, Virgil seems irritated. This seems like peak to me. Like, he's, he's irritated at Dante. So you're not going to ask me what spirits are these? Like, what's wrong with you that you're not asking me? And I want to say to Virgil, because you told me in the last canto not to buck you so much. You told me to shut up until we got to the shore of the river. This, as you can see, is why I think Virgil is a complicated figure. It's, I'm not trying to make Virgil into a modern Henry james or <laughs> I always come back to Henry James. Uh, I'm not trying to make Virgil into a modern, I don't, I don't know, Prairie Home Companion character. <laughs> wow. Um, I'm just trying to say that the poem itself seems to me to indicate that Virgil has got more character to him and more backbone to him and more structure and more depth than many people who just want to read him as an allegory of reason. And I would point to this. I would point to one canto ago, he chastised Dante for asking too many questions, and now here he seems to be irritated. You're not asking me enough questions. And maybe that's because this is where Virgil lives, and he wants to explain himself. You know, it's like if you come in my house and you don't seem to notice anything. This is where I live. How come you're not asking me about where I live? Maybe it's that. 
because he says he goes on he doesn't wait for dante to even answer before we walk any further i want you to know that these did not sin oh really these did not sin how is that possible how is it possible in Christian theology that you could have souls who did not sin? What happened to original sin? What happened to Adam? What happened to all that stuff that sin is transmitted through the father into the baby, that whole Thomistic giant structure of how sin is transmitted? These did not sin? Wait a minute. What about original sin itself from Adam? Dante, we'll talk more about this in the next episode, is getting very close here to the Pelagian heresy. He's getting very close to a heresy that the church firmly put down. Pelagius basically did not believe in original sin. And Dante's getting close to it. Or Virgil is getting close to it. Or this is a Virgilian answer to how, what, why they're there. And maybe we're not supposed to take it as the final answer. If that's the case, then the poem is making great demands on us because we're having to step back away from Virgil. But it's so weird. I want you to know that these did not sin. You know, no, no, that's not possible in Christian theology. See, this is the problem. That's what I love so much. Somebody has set up the fence of how the world is, and now you got to make the world fit inside that fence. Oh, it's so fabulous. And so you, suddenly you can feel the fence bending right here. These do not sin. Wait a minute. You're the ones who told me about original sin. Virgil going on. If they earned themselves some merit, it wasn't enough because there was no baptism. Oh, there, there you go. Which is the doorway to the faith that you believe. Well, the reason you baptize is because uh, is, is, is partly to get over original sin. And if they existed, Virgil goes on, before Christianity, they did not worship God as is required. I am counted one of these. Okay, maybe here we can see the poem changing its mind. Remember back to Canto 1, when Virgil first appears, and he first gives the big prophecy about Italy, and he gives the prophecy, or the, he foretells the journey ahead through the afterlife, and then Virgil says, you know, if you want to go up and see the blessed in heaven, I can't go with you, because the emperor who sits on high, remember this? The emperor who sits on high has declared that I can't enter heaven because I was a rebel against his law. That's what Virgil says. I was a rebel against his law. Now he says... If they existed before Christianity, they did not worship God as is required, and they didn't go through the doorway of baptism. There's been a change. That I was a rebel against his law, that early statement in Canto 1, uh, if you want to look back, it's about line 124. That early statement seems to be a sin of commission, something you did. I was a rebel against his law. Now it seems like it's a sin of omission, I didn't worship God the right way, and I there was no baptism, so I couldn't be baptized. It seems as if the, the, the terms of the game are altering around us. At least it does to me. And listen, the terms of the game are going to keep altering because <laughs> just wait. Just wait until we get up with the redeemed and we discover that there are pagans among them. And just wait until we get up among the redeemed and we find out there are people who are not Israelites, people who are Trojans, who lived before Christ, who end up in paradise. So this whole structure right here, well, you know, this is the place where people who didn't have any baptism and this is the place who didn't worship people, didn't worship God right. This is where we all end up. 
this sounds good now, but it sounds like Dante's already changing his mind back from I was a rebel against God's law to here, and it sounds like by the time we get up to Paradiso and discover Trojans, people from Troy in heaven who would live long before Christ and would have no no access to baptism and would have all... It seems like the terms of the argument are changing around us. Oh, just wait till we get to the first figure we meet in Purgatory. You'll see that the terms of the argument are changing around us, and this does not bother me. This is an example of Dante moving the fence to accommodate more. Okay, going on to the very back part of the passage. Because of these deficits, and for no other fault, I can hear St. Thomas Aquinas screaming. I can hear St. Augustine screaming in the background. Because of these deficits, and for no other fault, we are lost and afflicted in only this way. Sansa speme vivimo indicio. We live in desire without hope, or actually... Without hope, we live in desire, which even sounds stronger. Desire is crucial for Dante's theology. It is crucial for how he sees the universe operating. Dante's response to all this is, My heart was pressed down with sorrow when I heard this because I understood that people of outstanding merit were here suspended in limbo. If you remember, when we first meet Virgil, he says in that weird circumlocution back in Canto 2, I was among those suspended when a lady came to me. This passage then seems to reaffirm Virgil's weirdness back there. Remember I told you, if you just didn't know anything about the poem, now we know what Virgil meant when he said, I was amongst those suspended when a lady came to me, because it says, Dante says, the pilgrim, I understood that people in, of outstanding merit were here suspended in limbo. So now, see, we can interpret that previous passage. That's part of that whole thing that you have to have read the comedy in order to read the comedy. But beyond that, maybe there's something weirder here. I wanted you to see Virgil's lingo back there as strange and odd and a little off-putting, suspended. What in the world does that mean if I haven't read comedy? And here, Dante the Pilgrim and the poet, Dante writing, pick up that same verbiage. Is that because Dante the Pilgrim has learned to interpret limbo as Virgil sees it? If so, and I think there's evidence to suggest that. If so, then maybe we're not supposed to take all of this about Virgil at face value. These did not sin. If they earned themselves some merit, it wasn't enough. These did not sin. Because of these deficits, that is not being baptized and not worshiping God in the right way, because of these deficits and for no other fault, we are lost and afflicted in only this way. Are we expected to take this at face value? If we are, then this passage explains that previous passage about limbo, and you have that whole thing about you have to um, you have to have read the comedy in order to read the comedy. If not, if there's any quibble we can have with Virgil's doctrine, then we should see here that the pilgrim is slowly absorbing Virgil's vision of things. Let me say one last thing about that in this already way too long podcast. There is a theory that 
Beatrice, at least as we see Beatrice in Canto 2, isn't really Beatrice. Well, she is Beatrice, but what we're seeing is Beatrice as Virgil would understand her. Because when we finally meet Beatrice in the comedy way on down the line, when she finally confronts Dante, she's not going to look anything like Trust me, she's not going to look anything like that person in Canto 2 or that soul in Canto 2. She's going to be a force and an unbelievably abrupt and cruel, almost cruel force in the poem toward Dante the Milgram. And she's not going to look anything like that nice lady we met in Canto 2. There's some ways in which people read that, that what we're seeing in Canto 2 is not really Beatrice, we're seeing Virgil's understanding of Beatrice, or that she has appeared to Virgil as Virgil would be able to understand her, and not in all of her austere and severe glory. Maybe that is the case. Uh, If that's so, and if that is so back there, that we're seeing a Virgilian Beatrice, then maybe we're seeing a Virgilian understanding of limbo right here. Maybe. It's weird that nowhere in the poem does it correct it. Is this because I am supposed to, over the course of the poem, learn enough about God that I can come back here and correct Virgil's vision, and that I can accept his vision early on, but later when I learn much more, and Virgil will speak more about limbo in the poem, Later, when I know much more about limbo and when I learn much more about how salvation and redemption and all that operate, I can come back to these lines and say, oh, wait, Virgil wasn't quite right. But at this point in my journey with the poem, I can simply accept this as what limbo is. If that's the case, then the entire comedy is an educative structure, not just for the pilgrim, but for me, the reader. That's a dense point. And it's a dense point you might want to think a little more about. But at this point, this episode has gone on far too long. So I'm going to call a halt to it and come back in the next episode and just talk not about Dante's comedy, but about limbo itself. If you've enjoyed this podcast, this episode of Podcast Walking with Dante, or if you enjoy this whole podcast, Walking with Dante, drop a comment, please. Give me a rating. I would really appreciate it. It so helps out with the Google Analytics and the Apple Analytics and all that stuff. Tell me what you think. If you want to see this passage, check out my website, markscarpro.com, or you can just go to walkingwithdante.com, which directs to my website. You'll find a header there that says Walking with Dante. You can click on that, and you can find my my rough English translation of this very passage there. The comments are open in each individual blog post. All the episodes are also posted there. And if you like, we can kind of discuss this or we can start a conversation about this. Uh, you can also find me on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Any place I'd love to connect with you. And I'd love to see you back. See ya? Sure, I always say that. I'd love to have you back next time on the next episode of Walking with Dante. Walking with Dante.